0: This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. All right, this morning we're kicking off a new series of messages uh, called When Working Harder Isn't Working. It's a study of the Ten Commandments. So over the next nine weeks, we're going to walk through those. Um, now some of you, that's already thrown you off of Ten Commandments, nine weeks. We're not skipping one, uh, so you can relax, but today we're going to tackle one and two together because they're, they're really kind of teaching us the same thing. Now, I know uh, we come from different backgrounds, and when we hear the Ten Commandments, we have different reactions. Some of you already, you are just rule followers. You are black and white, and you're just sitting there saying, let's go. Let's do this. I'm ready to prove I'm better than all these jokers around me, right? Because you, your whole life, you have been good at following rules. You were the kid in school I didn't like because you made me look bad all the time, right? You were the kid that they would say, Chris, why can't you be more like whoever that, you know, and I married one of those people. Like Angie was the rule follower. There's nothing she loves more than a clear set of rules, clearly defined boundaries. It's why we don't play card games for the sake of our marriage. Because I view the rules of card games as uh, suggestions, you know. Um, There was a time, it's too late, I already started. I don't know if you ever played phase 10. We played it uh, early in our marriage. And in phase 10, I I haven't played it in 17 years because it was that traumatic. But There's some card that's like a wild card or something. I don't, I don't remember exactly what it is, but I remember I'd been storing them under the rug in our living room and my sister and and her boyfriend were over and Angie and I were playing, they're killing me. And suddenly I just go on this run and I'm destroying everybody. And I think it's awesome and they think it's mad. And Angie glances over and sees me slip one out of the rug and into my hand. And oh my goodness. Man, when you're a rule follower and somebody doesn't follow the rules, it's like a bomb goes. I mean, the next morning she left for work. And I'm like, bye, honey. I love you. Bye. And she just walks out the door. I'm like, what's wrong? You cheated at cards. I'm like, it's playing the game. So we've eliminated card playing from our house for the sake of our marriage. Not because we're holy, but because we have two different understandings of rules. right? And, and so for some of you this morning, if you're thinking, man, yes, get them. Tell these people how to live, tell them how to straighten up, fly right, it's going to be good. Others of us, oh, our approach to the Ten Commandments is like, oh, rules. I'm not so good at those. Now, you might not even know what the Ten Commandments are, but you're pretty sure you broke at least seven or eight of them last week. Now, you just kind of have that, that kind of back off, and then, then maybe your response is like, Ten Commandments, stone tablets, What? it's 2018. What does this have to do with me? And so just kind of to to be very upfront with you from the beginning, my hope for us over the next nine weeks is not to make you behave better. It's not to try to motivate you to be a better Christian, to say, hey, if you work really hard, if you hustle, if you're disciplined, if you'll make a a list and stick to it, you can keep the Ten Commandments. But My hope each week is to help us come to an understanding of the, the law, the Ten Commandments. They are good. They're a gift from God. They describe what life is like when we're devoted to the Lord. They describe the way we're supposed to live as his people. They're supposed to set us apart. But what the Ten Commandments also teach us is that the law is good, but we are not. Right? And so there always is going to come a point where we're going to stumble and we're going to fall. And for us as followers of Jesus, that's good news. Because it means when we've come to the end of ourself, then we're ready to embrace Jesus as the one who can actually fulfill the law for us and fulfill the law in us. All right, so, so this is going to help us understand this this morning. So I want you to think of, think of the law as a, a weight. And so if you have no awareness of the law, you maybe you didn't grow up going to church, you didn't hear about the Ten Commandments, these kind of things all the time, then you're just kind of walking through life. And when you're walking through life without that weight, you feel fine. Right? Like Right now, I, I feel good. I can handle the weight of me. I can walk around. I can stand here all day. But as soon as I discover the weight and I go and I place myself under the weight, then it starts to feel heavy. And this is the, the function of the law. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 7. I wouldn't have known what sin was if it wasn't for the law. But the law comes and says there is black and white. There is light and darkness. There is a way to live and a way not to live. And it's intended to, to feel a little heavy, you're supposed to notice it. Now for some of us, our first introduction to the law is crushing. It just immediately we know, I've broken all of those, or at least most of them. For others of us though, you came out of the womb and you immediately had the weight of the law placed on you in the home you grew up in. And that's, that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to grow up knowing that God has a plan, that you're supposed to live in certain ways, that you're supposed to do certain things. But what can go wrong with it is if you grow up with that understanding, then you can actually become pretty good and pretty comfortable at walking around with a certain amount of weight on you. You can get pretty proud of yourself, right? And you can begin to get pretty self-righteous and pretty judgmental. And you begin to look at others and you think, well, I can handle the weight of the law. What's wrong with that guy? I can handle the weight of the law. What's wrong with her? right? And, and though you don't know it, you are in your mind becoming the, the, the bro at the gym in the little skinny tank top guzzling the water jug, just saying like, hey, watch me work. Everybody watch me work. Aren't you impressed? This week I didn't murder anybody. Right? Anybody? Yeah? Okay, so we all met that one this week at minimum. There are no murderers here. You probably didn't sleep with somebody else's spouse. You probably didn't make an idol and bow down to it. right? But, but as we start to get a little farther into the depth of the law, it starts to add weight to us. Because it's not just these kind of big, gross sins. But then he starts to get down into the, the things of like, well, in addition to that, how about if you try not to lie? And suddenly we feel that one a little bit more. Then he tells us, oh, and on top of not lying, why don't you live a life where you don't covet? And we start to think, I am kind of jealous. And I mean, I haven't stolen anything of of value, you know? And and it starts to waste down, starts to get heavy. And then Jesus comes and Jesus says, oh, you you think you've got it? You think you've nailed it? You think you've got the law keeping down, right? He comes in a time where people have been living under the law for centuries, and they've become very good at keeping it, very good at following it. So Jesus comes, and he says, okay, I know, I know you think you've nailed it, but let's take do not murder and let's change that into do not be angry. And let's take do not commit adultery and let's push that further into do not lust. And then let's take do not covet and let's turn that into be content in any and every situation. And what eventually happens to all of us, is, if we're honest, is we get to the point where we can no longer lift the weight of the law, right? Now, there is no way that I'm going to get under that bar and try to do anything with it, because I know how that ends. Like, I've watched the lifting fail videos. That ends with me here, and then suddenly I'm on my back, and it's on my throat, and service is over, and you remember it, but that's it, right? Hey, remember that time our pastor died? Like, that's the... That's the end of church that day. Maybe it's the end of this church forever. Cause that would be, I mean, you'd be like scraping the blood off and it'd be, it'd be horrible. I didn't, but this is what happens to us. But, but this is a good thing. All right, now, now some of you, you're already looking at that. So I'll save you the math. It's 325 pounds. Some of you could come up here and you could squat it. You are a big, strong man, or you are the strongest woman I've ever known in my whole life. I don't know. Either way. Right. Some of you, you might be able to bench press that. Some of you, you can deadlift it. Some of you, you could overhead squat it. If you can overhead squat that, please come shake my hand afterwards. Like, I just want to meet you. But here's, here's what I know. No matter how strong you are, I can find more weight. There's more weight in the world than there is strength in your body. And this is what Jesus does with the law for us. He says, you might have been good on your own. You might have made it. You might have been achieving. But I'm trying to show you, you're going to reach a point where you cannot do it on your own. And when you reach that point, it shouldn't make you despondent. But instead, it should make you aware that I now need to look outside myself. And there's, for those of you who who do enjoy lifting weights, there's that principle of loading to failure. And the idea is if you want to get bigger, if you want to get stronger, then you've got to lift and you've got to lift to the point that your muscles actually fail. And when they fail, it sends a signal to your body of I need to adapt or this guy's going to kill me. And so then you begin to adapt and you get stronger and you get bigger. Well, with the law, it comes to us and it's intended to bring us to the point of failure, to crush us. But in that crushing, God is gracious and he's merciful because he doesn't then stand over us and say, what's wrong with you? But he says, okay, now, now that I have your attention, now that you have to acknowledge your weakness and your inability, now you're ready to change and adapt. But the power is not going to come from in you. It's going to come from me. And so each week as we walk through the Ten Commandments, this is kind of the the track we're going to follow is, what does this commandment teach us about God? Why is it so hard for us to keep that commandment in our own strength and our own power? And then how does Jesus come to us and open the door to where we can live in such a way where following and fulfilling these commands can come as naturally to us as it did to him? So we're going to start this morning in Exodus chapter twenty looking at verses one through six. If you have a Bible with you, you can read along with me. If not, it'll be here on the screen. It says, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. And these first two commands are given to teach us about God. And the first thing they teach us is God is completely and totally without equal in the world. There's no one like him. There's no one next to him. There's no one that compares to him. And and to help us understand this, we have to remember the setting in which the Ten Commandments are given. So the Israelites have been led out of Egypt. For 400 years, they've lived in slavery. Their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, as many generations as they can really remember in their mind, they've lived in slavery in Egypt. And now God has acted in his miraculous power, the Ten Plagues. He's spoken through Moses. He's led them out of Egypt. They've been showered with gifts on their way out by the Egyptians. Pharaoh tries to trap him at the Red Sea. God splits the sea. They walk right through it. It washes over Pharaoh's army. They are delivered. They are free. And now God brings them to Mount Sinai. And he tells Moses, I'm going to come meet with you. So get the people ready. So they wash their clothes. They consecrate themselves. They change some of their actions. And Moses begins to tell the people, hey, what we're about to enter into is serious. When the Lord descends on the mountain, nobody touches it. And whoever touches it is going to die. Whether it's man, woman, if it's an animal, anyone who steps foot on the mountain when the Lord is there will die. So in Exodus 19, we, we find this picture of Moses has led the people out and they're standing before the mountain. And it says, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. With a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it like fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Now, the setting is important because God's about to tell us, I'm not like anything you've ever known before, anything you've ever seen before, any voice you've ever heard before. And he's about to give us some very specific rules about, you're, you're going to worship me and me alone? You're not going to worship any other gods. And then he's going to get into the details of our life. This is how you're going to live. And so he, it's, it's like he knows us and recognizes our, our, our incredible ability to always excuse ourselves from his authority. And so he comes in this demonstration of power and might. This is, this is God pulling out his dad voice, right? You remember that as a kid? Maybe in your house, it was a mom voice. But you knew what it was. There was a way your parents said your name normally. And there was a way your parents said your name when they wanted to get your attention. Right? For for my dad, it went deep. He has a much deeper voice than me. A couple weeks ago, I met somebody who'd known my dad growing up. And their first comment to me was, oh, your voice isn't as deep as his. (laughs) Thanks. Like, uh, that's offensive. You know? Like... I'm stronger than, yeah, it was just like, come on, but I can't, so my dad, though, it was, a, it was the Christopher Vance Dow, and it came out, and it was always full name, and it was always very deep. My mom, it, it didn't go deeper, it just got louder, but either way, I knew, like, it's time to pay attention, it's time to stop, it's time to pretend I was not doing the thing I was just doing, um, and to start thinking of my excuses, right? And so in, in Exodus 19, God is coming down, and, and not just with a dad voice, but with power, with might. The mountain trembles. Smoke is billowing out of it. And he's getting our attention, and his first command is, there is no one like me. There's no one next to me. There's no one that holds a candle with me. And it seems fearful, and it seems intimidating, and yet at the same time, it's a sign of God's grace and mercy because the God of all things chooses to descend and to reveal himself to his people. And in the way he speaks, he, he, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not craft any idols. You shall not bow down and worship them. Now, that, that you, if you look at it in Hebrew, it is in the uh, second, uh, first person singular. Now, like me, it's been a minute since you were in high school English, probably, so you don't remember that. But uh, there's a similarity that, that maybe Moses probably didn't even know about between Hebrew and Oklahoma English. So here, here's, here's how we understand this. When God speaks to the Israelites from the mountain, and Moses, it, it comes down on the tablets, and it says, You will not put any gods before me. You will not craft any idols. You will not bow down and worship him. That you is not y'all, right? This is not, y'all better not have any other gods. Y'all better not make any images. Because if it's y'all, then we can already start to excuse ourselves from it, right? If it's kind of just the plural, always talking to the whole community, well... That's good for 99 percent of the community, but I'm in the 1% that because of my life experiences and some of the things that happened to me, I'm just not real comfortable with the idea of a God who controls everything and tells me what to do. But God removes that excuse from us from the beginning. He says, No, you. So we hear it. It's not y'all, it's you. Right? I mean, maybe substitute your name. Chris, you will not have any other gods before me. Chris. You will not make any idols. Chris, you will not bow down and worship anything or anyone else. And when we begin to hear it personally, it does two things for us. First, it should remind us, God knows me and he cares about me. He cares about me enough to reveal himself to me personally. And then what it also does is it reminds me, well, if he's went to that length, then I probably better pay attention to this. And in these first two commandments, he's he's expounding on what it means for him to be without equal. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. There's no one like me. There's no one next to me. I'm not engaged in some long eternal struggle with some other force that's equally strong. Saying you're coming out of the land of the Egyptians. You're coming out of a polytheistic culture where they have a God for everything, every season and every need. And I'm telling you, I am the Lord of all things, of all times, of all people. I'm the provider, the sustainer, the creator. Everything you need comes from my hand. Everything you have is a result of my grace. There's no one and nothing like me. So don't you ever make the mistake of trying to bring me down to the level of all of these other gods, superstitions, and religions. And the second thing he tells us is you're not going to make any idols. You're not going to make any images. Right? When, when we make idols, when we make images, what we're trying to do is we are trying to establish our sovereignty over the supernatural. Idols are made by humans for humans. God is reminding us, you are made by me and for me. And so there's, there's not negotiation in this relationship. There's not like, you, you know, you bring your idol, it's little gifts, it's little offerings, and, and you think now it's obligated to do what you want. And God's telling us, no, 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 I am completely different than that. I made one deal that you're sinners and I'm going to extend grace to you. And that's all that there is. There's nothing left to be done, nothing left to be accomplished. And so he's he's very clear to us from these first two commands of, look, I'm God and there's nothing, no one like me. And I've put in you a desire to worship me, but I know you and you're going to turn that desire on its head and begin to worship other things. There are going to be times where you can't see me, where maybe you don't hear me the way you want to, and so you're going to try to carve things out of wood or stone. You're going to make things out of metal to try to try to comfort your soul with something you can see and touch. He's telling us, don't give in to that. You were made to worship, but you were made to worship me and me alone, and it's only in the worship of God that your soul will be satisfied. And, and so for us, then, the, the temptation is to work harder, to be a good worshiper of God. But what we understand, if we've tried that very long on our own, is, is we're just not very good at worshiping God alone. John Calvin put it this way. He says, each of us from our mother's womb is a master craftsman of idols. Right? You, you might not be, maybe you're like me, you can't make anything at all with your hands. If we gave you wood, directions, and all the tools you needed, it would look like a kindergartner did it, Right? But Calvin says, look, it it doesn't actually matter what you build or what you carve or what you make. In your heart, you are a master craftsman. And the thing that you craft more than anything else are idols, objects of worship that replace your affection for God. See, an idol doesn't have to be a statue. It doesn't have to be a figurine. It doesn't have to be something you pray to. It doesn't have to be a picture on the wall. An idol is anything that you give the worship, the love, the attention that belongs to God alone. And an idol doesn't even have to be a bad thing. For most of us, what we do most of the time is we take the good gifts of God and we pervert them and we turn them into idols. We take our, our, his gift of marriage, his gift of children, his gift of work, his gift of resources, his gift of pleasure and leisure, his gifts of sex and power, and we begin to flip these on their head and we make them our objects of worship. And we, like Calvin says, become master craftsmen. Always building our next idol. And, and God knows this about us. It's why he gives us the first two commandments. The first two commandments, if you look at it wrongly, you can easily think these are based in the insecurity of God. Right? He's coming in, stomping his feet, announcing who he is. But, but God's command for us to worship him and not worship idols are not rooted in his insecurity. God is fine without your worship. But he chooses to give us these laws and these rules so that we understand where our security lies. So the first two commandments aren't about God's desire for to, to make up for his own insecurity, but instead they're about his desire for our security because he knows any idol you place the weight of your worship on, it's going to crumble. And you've experienced this in your life. This is why in, in some of your marriages there is so Much angst. It's why no matter how good things are, there's always this underlying tension because one or both of you have placed the weight of your worship on your spouse. And you are expecting that relationship to be the thing that fully and finally satisfies your soul. You think if my, if he just knew what I was thinking, he's never going to know what you're thinking. You don't know what you're thinking. Right? I don't know what I'm thinking. If I expect Angie to read my mind, she'll get it right, and I'll immediately change my mind. Well, that was good 10 seconds ago. What you got now? Right? This is is how we work. You've done it. You felt that weight. Maybe it was as a child, you felt the weight of your parents' worship on your shoulders. I've got to achieve. I've got to succeed. They're counting on me. Maybe it's the, the weight of worship that you've placed on your job, and you can't figure out why no matter how much you succeed, you're just never satisfied. Maybe it's the accumulation of stuff or experiences and and you can't figure out no matter how big my house gets, no matter how many cars I have, no matter how many great places I go to, it's never enough. Maybe you've placed your worship on the opinions of others. And no matter how consistent their affirmation, no matter how many people have told you I wish I had your life, no matter how many times they have liked all the pictures you've shared, it never satisfies your soul. And the reason it won't and can't is because it wasn't created to. These first two commands are about God and who he is, but they're also about us and who we are. We are created to worship and we're going to worship something or someone. And God alone can hold the weight of your worship. So what do we do then? What do we do when we find ourselves in that space of, okay, I know what God requires, And I I recognize my inability to do that. I recognize I'm constantly tempted to worship other things. I'm constantly tempted to worship. I mean, today's kickoff Sunday. You want to talk about worshiping stupid things. You poor Cowboys fans, you're going to go home and worship that this is the year. It's not. Right? It's not. Take it from a Chiefs fan. It's not. It's never the year. It's never the year for us. It's always someone else's year. But we're going to go home and we're going to put our hopes on men we don't know playing a game that lasts three hours every Sunday. And so God's coming to tell us no other gods, don't bow down, don't worship. So so what do we do? Do we then just decide I'm going to work harder? I'm going to make another list of how I'm going to be a better worshiper. Jesus tells us a story, or not Jesus, John tells us a story about Jesus in John chapter 4. Jesus and the disciples are out traveling. Uh, They're ministering from town to town. And one day in the middle of the afternoon, they come up to a well outside of a town. And they come up to the well, and, and for a moment, Jesus is alone at the well. And there's a Samaritan woman who comes to the well in the middle of the day. Now, there are all kinds of cultural reasons why her and Jesus should not have spoken that day. In fact, in, in his day, their whole interaction, the whole story we're going to look at this morning, would have been pretty scandalous. But Jesus begins to talk with her, and he uses the, the idea of water, that they're there at the well to begin to show her and begin to teach us, look, you were made to worship and you're going to worship something. And I've come so you can finally worship God as he requires. And it's this this really beautiful story. But the the best part of it is who Jesus chooses to share the story with. You want to talk about the, the weight of the law. This lady had been crushed by the weight of the law. Jesus, he, he never had the class. He never, you know, I don't know if you've ever, maybe with your kids, you've been in a conversation and you've been at somebody's house and your kid's like, hey, how much did your house cost? How mu- are you rich? How much money do you, you know? And there's just things that we know like, hey, don't shut up, you know, be quiet. Jesus didn't take that class. He starts talking to this woman. He's like, hey, heard you've been married five times. Living with a dude you're not married to, sleeping with him, how's that going for you? Right, it's just, it's so its so awkward, so painful. And this poor lady, like she, she's living in shame, right? Culturally, we know this. The women would have come out in the morning to draw their water when it's cool. She comes out in the heat of the day because she has either been ostracized or she has just kind of uh, done that of her own doing. I'm not gonna be with them, I'm not like them, so I'll go out when no one will bother me. And she goes out on this day and she's crushed by the weight of the law. And she meets a man who's going to change her entire life. And her whole life, she's been looking to men for her answers, for her salvation, for her security. But on this day, she finally figures out it's not about working harder. It's about receiving this gift that Jesus offers to her. So her and Jesus, they have this talk about the, the water, and he's asking her to draw some water. And she says, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't ask me. And he says, if you knew who I was, you'd get the water. <laughs> right? And so, so they kind of have this talk back and forth. And then, then Jesus tells her in verse 14, He says, uh, those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. Now, we don't have time to get into the the depth of what's going on here, so we'll just kind of skip straight to the, the point of it. The water Jesus promises here is the presence of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Jesus is the one who secures our salvation. He's the one who opens the door for us to live in this new life. But he sends the Holy Spirit to us to cause this gift to well up within us. So what Jesus is describing here is not a a one-time washing of the water. It's not a baptism experience. It's not the movement from darkness to light. But it is the ongoing presence of water that gives life that wells up from within your soul. So it's a picture of, look, you were crushed by the weight of the law. You were hopeless with no ability to lift it on your own. And in the the depths of your misery, whether you've been married five times like that lady or your story of failure is something different. We all have our stories. But from the depths of your understanding of how insufficient you are to fulfill the law, you look up and from outside, here he comes. And he comes with a promise of, man, I'm going to give you something that is going to perfectly satisfy the desires of your heart for worship. I'm going to give you something that can actually hold the weight of your worship. And I'm not just going to give it to you one time, and it's not just going to exist outside of you, but I'm actually going to put it in, and it's going to flow up and flow out of you. It's this beautiful promise of water welling up. You're not going to have to go back and dip again and again and again, but it's going to bubble up. It's going to bubble over. It's going to bubble out. And in the process, it's going to push up and push out all of those other temptations, all of those other idols, all of those things that you're tempted to, to give your attention, to give your worship to. Jesus then tells her in verse 23, a time is coming and has now come. When the true worshipers will worship the father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Jesus, he, he re- reiterates the first two commandments. You're going to worship. All of your life you're going to worship someone or something. He says that the spiritual worshipers, the ones who have God's spirit in them, the time is coming. And right now it's here for you to begin to worship in the Spirit and in truth. This means it's time for you to stop trying to work harder to be a better worshiper and to start surrendering to the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's time to let Jesus move from someone who's given you a gift one time to the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit that is constantly bubbling up and bubbling out and bubbling over. R.T. Kendall says it this way. He says, if we were to walk in the Spirit, we would fulfill the law accidentally, even if we never heard of the Ten Commandments. See, see, the goal is not to get you stronger so that you can lift this on your own. You're never going to get there. The goal is to help you understand that as the spirit wells up inside of you, then God is going to come and he's going to fulfill the law for you. Jesus told us, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to be perfect so that you could be perfect. I came to do it all so that one day you can do it with me. This is the promise for believers of Christ, not that he will be our role model or a good example, not that he will inspire us to try harder, but through a supernatural work, the same spirit that walked with Christ, that raised him from the dead, now dwells in us. And it's the spirit that gives us both the desire and the ability to fulfill the law. And when you fulfill the law, it's not going to feel like you're grinding out reps in some dark weight room, but it is going to be the natural overflow of your life. It's going to feel like just, just your normal way of living, your normal way of walking. And when God's people live in the spirit and they begin to fulfill the law, it shines like a light on the hill to a world lost in darkness. Because it's not about me. If my self-righteousness is the hope of the world, we're all in trouble. If your ability to keep the law is the hope of your family, your kids are done. But if it's the power of the spirit inside of you, then there's hope and there's salvation. And you might already be sitting here and thinking, "That's, that's good, but you don't know what I've done. You're probably right, but I bet you haven't been married five times. But you probably aren't living with someone you're not supposed to. Maybe you are. And the beauty of the gospel is Jesus says, I don't care. The time is coming and has now come for the true worshipers to worship in spirit and in truth. And so his grace comes to you not because you've earned it, but because you can never earn it. His strength comes not because he looks at you and thinks, there's someone who's gonna really earn this and make me proud, but because he says, there's a dead person that I need to make alive. And so everything that you think disqualifies you from a life walking in the spirit, Jesus tells you this morning, you are qualified. You are weak, you are sick, you are helpless, you are dead. And in his grace and mercy, he comes to us again. He sits down with the people he's not supposed to sit down with. He has the hard conversations with us that no one else is going to have. And as he pierces into the darkest corners of our heart, his spirit brings life. His spirit brings transformation. And this is our hope this morning. In a couple minutes, we're going to have a chance to respond to what the Lord is saying to us. At Christian Chapel, the, the way we've done that the past couple years is, is at the end of each service, we dismiss to a, a prayer room. It's out the doors and to your left. The, the reason we do that is we really felt like God was directing us several years ago to create space where people could have a more personal and more powerful encounters with God. And over the last couple years, what we have seen is, is just week after week, service after service, There are people going back there and they're meeting with our pastors, they're meeting with our prayer team. And what we find almost every single week is God has been working something in your heart for days or weeks or months or sometimes years or decades. And you just happened to come to church on September 9th, 2018. And you happened to hear a message that dealt with the very thing the Lord's been dealing with you about. We happened to sing a song to read a scripture and you just thought, man, isn't that such a great coincidence? And each week we get the privilege in that prayer room saying, it's so much more than that. This is God meeting you at the well. This is God saying, "I, I see you, I know you, I love you, and I have a plan for you. So now let's walk in this new life. So in a a moment, we're going to dismiss, and I I just want to encourage you, if, if God is working in you and you recognize the reason you can't stop lying, you can't stop cheating, the reason you can't stop breaking all the other commandments, it's because you've never got the first one right. You've never known what it was to be a worshiper of God. You've never known what it was for his spirit to well up in you. The good news is today can be the day that you begin that process. Right? Some of you, you followed Christ for decades, and for decades it's been a grind. For decades it's been about you and your effort. And today the Spirit says, let me well up within you. Let me do this. The, the way we keep the first and the second commandment has more to do with doing the right things than it does with our efforts to not do the wrong things. You can spend your whole life trying to not worship everything else, or you can spend your life worshiping God by the power of the Spirit, and all those other things are going to fade into the background. As you drink the pure water, the contaminated water loses its appeal and when it comes back, you more quickly distinguish it for what it is and you reject it and you once again let the spirit well up inside of you. So my prayer for you today is not to try to motivate you to behave better, but to just encourage you. God's spirit is available to you. Wherever your well might be this morning, he's meeting you there and he's saying, let me lead you into this new life. Your problem isn't your addiction. Your problem isn't the lust. Your problem isn't the, the, the cycles of generational abuse and neglect and all these other things. Your first problem is a worship problem. If you will learn to worship me by the power of the spirit inside of you, then that'll flow out to all of these other areas. Start at the core, start at the center and let his spirit accomplish his work in you. If you bow your heads and close your eyes, I wanna pray for you. God, you see each one of us and you see our our desire to live the life you've created us for. And you also see how often we divert from it. Lord, forgive us for thinking that we could please you through our own power and our own strength. Forgive us for substituting the worship that is due to you alone for cheap imitations. Forgive us for thinking that we could sit next to you or we could control or manipulate you. Lord, we ask this morning that your spirit would come and give us a proper view of who you are and who we are. And Lord, even as for some of us, the law crushes us this morning. May we see you as our rescuer and our redeemer, the one who saves us and restores us. I pray for those who are exhausted from their own efforts. This morning, may the power of your spirit come. Flow up and flow out of them, bringing true experiences of hope and joy and peace. Lord, show each of us that the things we long for will be satisfied from your hand and your hand alone. Surrender to you, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and take residence in our hearts. Begin to push up and to push out every temptation, every sin, every false idol, every little God. Help us to see you and you alone as the one who deserves and is worthy and can sustain the weight of our worship. Lord, I pray for those who've never made that decision to follow you. Today, they feel like that woman at the well, just crushed by the weight of their sin and poor choices. Today, may they see you as the one bringing salvation and hope. May they hear your voice saying, I see you, I know you, I love you, and I have a plan for you. Holy Spirit, give us the power and the courage to respond to what you're saying to us. In Jesus' name.